Subtext and Discourse, a podcast which takes you behind the scenes of the art world with unique individuals involved in the field. I'm your host, Michael Dooney. Some of you may remember my interview from earlier this year with Lara Hiervi, director of the Finland Institute Germany. We spoke about the Cultural Institute's thematic program for 2020, which focuses on the relationship between humans and nature. Although many of the exhibitions and events were disrupted as a result of COVID-19, the group exhibition Fragile Times still went ahead. Supported by the Finland Institute Deutschland and hosted by the Gallerium Kerner Park, this timely exhibition opened at the beginning of July and will continue until the 18th of October. Coinciding with the Fragile Times exhibition and the Communale Gallery in Berlin Kunstfokker, that being the Communal Gallery Berlin Art Week, I spoke with Dorothy Beanett, director of Gallerium Kerner Park and Gallerium Zalbal, the two municipal galleries in Berlin Neukölln. Dorothy co-curated the Fragile Times exhibition together with Kadi Kivinen, curator of the Museum of Modern Art Kiesma in Helsinki, Finland. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Subtext and Discourse if you want to be the first to hear new episodes. It's available for streaming on all major platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. But without further ado, please enjoy listening to my conversation with Dorothy Beanett. Yes, I'm the director of Galerie im Saalbau and of Galerie im Körner Park here in Neukölln. And how long have the two galleries existed? The Galerie im Körner Park was founded in 1983. Körner Park is a former pitch. Pitch of, actually, I don't know the English word, it's keys. Keys, it's not sand, it's very small, but if it's a little bit bigger, it's keys. I don't know the yeah, these grains, sure. you don't know. So actually, he had this pit, corner, and he founded this park. That's why it's under street level. Oh, so it was like a quarry. So this building then... The Galerie im Körner Park is a former orangery. And the one in the Galerie im Saalbau, that was... That was founded in 1992. So you've been in charge of both of them for the last three years. Yeah, actually, in September it will be three years. Oh, September is three, okay. What were you doing before? Actually, I was a freelance curator, also working for this gallery here. And have you always been active as a curator? Yes, I was studying art history and um, Slavistic languages, Russian and uh, Polish. Mm -hmm. Yeah, then I started beginning like an assistant and then as a freelance curator. Oh, okay. What was the involvement with the different languages? Well, it was just that when starting studying, I thought it's boring to study art history combined with Italian language as most of my fellows did. And then I thought, oh, I, I actually at that time, I started to be interested in Russian avant-garde art. And it was this time of when Gorbachev was relevant and so on. I just liked the language and that's why I started to try ah, to learn it. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, I guess typically the Romance languages or the other... Exactly. ...the main European languages. Has it been... Actually, where are you from, in fact? From the Rhineland. It's between Cologne and Bonn. And have you been based in Berlin for very long? Yes, actually, since um, the beginning of 90s. Actually, I was there a little bit before. I think it was in the end of the 80s already. Yeah, okay. I finished my studies here. Oh, right, in Berlin. Mm -hmm. Okay. I guess through that period, did you have a lot of involvement with Eastern European art and from Russian yes, art? Yes, actually, I started with these kind of exhibitions, like doing exhibition with Russian artists or with Eastern European artists. It was this wave where you could get money. I did a big project that was supported by the European Union, by the cultural funds. But then I realized that it's more interesting to mix people, to mix people from Eastern Europe and from Western Europe and to combine these different approaches 
then I was doing the Ars Baltica Triennial of Photographic Art, showing artists who are located around the Baltic Sea, mm -hmm. which means that there are people from Western countries and Eastern countries. So this was kind of possibility to mix the different cultures, cultural backgrounds. Yeah. Did you have a lot of involvement with photography? At that time, yes. And it was not only photography, it was also art with photography. I think now it's becoming more common that it's art with photography, right? Yeah, and it started at that time. That's why we one of the shows we did, it was called What is Important? The question meant to think about it. What is important in art and how can we use photography for art? Yeah. Do you think within Western Europe, it's been a bit slower to catch on to that experimental way of dealing with photography? I mean, I feel from my own experience when I've been to the different festivals in some of the Eastern Bloc countries that not always, but they're often quite daring when it comes to the photography that they're producing and even the art in general. Sometimes when you go in further west, it can tend to be a bit more conservative. Eastern countries, you mean? No, they're less conservative. Less conservative. I'm not sure. It also depends on the countries, I think. At least the cliche would say that they are more conservative, mm -hmm. but that's definitely not the case. There are a lot of experiments in the Eastern countries. And it was already in the 90s that they started with different kinds of experiments. But I think for the artists in the Eastern countries, it was a little bit more difficult because the education is extremely conservative. Oh, okay. So it's more difficult to find your own ways out of this. Are you still involved in photography now? No. I mean, if there is an artist who does photography, I'm involved, but yeah. it's not that I'm on purpose <laughs> involved in photography. Okay. But do you still have a focus to that region or now you're more... No, I think in general topics and themes and here in the gallery, we have the focus on exhibitions that deal with different social and political issues. It's mostly group shows and many Berlin-based artists, which also means that the program is quite international. Yeah. But from time to time, we also invite artists from abroad. Like now with the Finnish artist, it was very helpful that the Finnish Institute actually asked us if we would like to do a cooperation. And since I love Finland, because in this framework of the Ars Baltica Triennial, I have been there several times and did some projects there. So I immediately thought, oh, great idea to do something with Finland. But at the same time, I said, first of all, I would love to do an exhibition not only with Finnish artists, because I don't like these national exhibitions, but rather to do an exhibition on a topic and just to involve a lot of Finnish artists. Yeah, okay. And the second point was that I said I would love to do it not on my own, but together in collaboration with the Finnish curator. And that's why I suggested Kati Kivin, with whom I worked before on one of the Asbaltica triennials. And happily, she agreed. So the selection of artists and actually, how did the topic come about? Because I had spoke with Laura Hirvi at the beginning of this year, and she was telling me about how the Fragile Times exhibition couldn't have come at a better time, really, with everything that's happening globally. But I know from speaking with other curators, often these exhibitions are in planning for much longer than when they just appear. Yeah, that's true. When we started thinking about the exhibition, we exchanged ideas about the topics we both were working on. On, and Kati had in Helsinki this big coexistence exhibition. And I was also here always involved in these aspects of how nature influences man and the other way around because we have the park here in front of the door. And so we came up with this idea of the relation between man and nature. And 
when we did this Aspaltica triennial, both of us interested these social changes and how social changes and insecurities and stuff like this mm -hmm. influences the arts. Yeah. Also before Corona, I think this was relevant that people feel insecure that certain difficulties are in the air. Like also the climate crisis was <laughs> was before, you know, and we we started to think to involve artists who critically deal with all these issues. Mm-hmm like climate change, how man deals with nature, how this has its basis already in colonial times. Yeah. And then Kati was here and we did research together in Berlin mm -hmm. and me and my colleagues presented her some artists here and then happily with the support of the Finnish Institute again, I was able to travel to Helsinki and we had some research together there as well. I was very happy to get to know some Finnish young artists whom I did not know before. And then we discussed already at that time in Finland, I had a floor plan with me and we started to discuss, well, how could this work together? How did you go about the selection? Because I know you said you didn't want to have only Finnish artists. And I think there's probably half in the show, maybe. Or there's a few that are from Finland that are based here. Yeah, it's actually not only Finnish artists. There's Sarah Ronbeck is Swedish, Ingrid Torvund is Norwegian and two German artists. And it's nine in total. Yeah. As for the selection of works thematically, I imagine you must have had quite a large group of artists to choose from. How did you get the list down to the ones that you've selected within the exhibition? Well, I think it's um, it's a complicated and quite associative process because you have works of which you think that they would fit best to what you want to tell. And then you start to think what could go with it and you are looking for interrelations. And I think it's, the result is quite interesting because all of the works in the show are like universes or like stars in the Milky Way as well, or, or like little dots in a net, you know. It's about finding the interrelations between all these works. On the one hand, content-wise, but also visually, that suddenly you see, oh, there's the blue color and it comes back here. But first of all, of course, thematically. I noticed when I saw the show on the opening night and then even revisiting the texts in the exhibition now, fossil fuels seems to be consistent through a lot of the exhibitions and also the byproducts of how we generate energy, how we generate society, a lot of the waste that ends up in the oceans. These themes seem quite consistent through a lot of the projects. Was that one of the main focal points that you wanted to pick on? Yeah, exactly. We thought about this relation between men and nature and how we destroy nature and how artists deal with this problem, but without just showing the problem, but finding interesting models, how we could get out of it, or also just to show it in a different way, how difficult and how complicated this situation is so it's not about a newspaper article yeah but trying to touch people on another level for me i think one of the ones totem habitat environmental racism which was about tropical vegetation and the palm trees and how they can take the nuclear energy out of the ground or if there's a site that's been polluted with nuclear waste when they're taking up water and other nutrients from the ground that they also go into the coconuts is that yes it's true correctly? it's true they take the nuclear energy out of the soil mm -hmm. these coconuts and these ipomonea are a symbol for the artists for this environmental racism because it's interesting that all these nuclear tests are usually made in this area where indigenous people live. 
and actually by polluting the soil, the basis for what they can eat and what they can trade with is destroyed. And so we're always on the back of these people. Yeah. And that's what he understands by environmental racism. I'd never heard of this before, actually. I wasn't aware of the plant and how it interacts with uranium and with radioactive matter. Yeah, it just takes it in and then you can't eat it anymore. Was there anything through curating the exhibition that you learned as well? Actually, I learned this as well because um, actually Markus Hoffmann, when we met him, he had another installation called Totem Habitat and it was quite different and he said that he would like to develop something new also with this habitat theme. Then he came up with this idea with the coconuts and I think it's quite interesting for this space because it's a former orangerie mm -hmm. and the owner, Körner, he was living in this time of colonization and also to have an orangerie was a sign of colonialism because you were planning to have the exotic plants inside, you know. Yeah. And that's why um, this installation fits very well to the space. I mean, we have this extremely high ceiling and so he was reacting to these space conditions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think just how it uses the space rather, mm -hmm. the way that it's presented. One of the others that I quite enjoyed during the opening was the video piece. I found you under earth, under blood. But this was part four of a series, is that right? Yes, actually it's a trilogy. Okay, so part three. And Inge Torwund is working on this series since 2012. And she's preparing everything for it herself. She's doing the costumes and all the props. She is performing herself in the nature. And it's actually in Telemark where you have all these kind of mixing of pagan traditions and Christian traditions. She is interested on the one hand in this mixture and on the other hand on the question how mythologies appear and how strong old mythologies are in comparison to new mythologies. Mm -hmm. And she's also quoting sci-fi films in her work and making a really strange mix out of this but for us it was interesting because all these figures in the video they are performing rituals and ceremonies but they deal always very carefully and with a high sensibility with nature so it could be understood also like a model for a maybe more sensitive dealing with nature yeah i watched this one on the opening as well it was quite nice just the atmosphere and the mood i think that she created with it and then it was also a bit unclear actually what was happening exactly that's also what i like in the video that it's really a bit strange and also a little bit like a riddle yeah that's why i felt like it and i think even in the introduction where you say about how can art and poetry contribute to the healing process that improves interactions between all organisms it was like a visual poem that it didn't necessarily have a concrete answer. Exactly. That's the point of art. And that's what Kati and me, we both like in art, that art poses questions, but not necessarily gives answers, mm -hmm. but rather gives poetic inspiration and inspires us all to find our own solutions and ways of maybe changing also something in our attitude towards nature. Yeah. Since the show has opened, actually, because I know there's been some different events and tours of the exhibition, how has the response been in general for people viewing the work and then reflecting on, I guess, the state of the world and how it is that we are treating nature? The people in general are very positive about the exhibition. Most of them, especially children, are very much attracted by the work of Philippe de Avila. It's the work Eclipse. Oh, that one's really nice. And where yeah. you really see the black oil running on the surface of a lamp and covering the lamp so that it's in the end it's dark and you really 
visualize the eclipse for me it's like a, a symbol of this whole process because on the on one hand the energy the oil is of course very positive and mm -hmm. brings progress and so on and, but on the other hand we pollute the environment and we make it worse and worse so pollution will darken the sun so we we are part of the process while using energy Now, I quite like this one, I think, in, in its simplicity as well. That's why people are attracted by it a lot. But first you are visually attracted and then you start thinking about it and what it means. And then you you read the title and you read Eclipse and then, ah, yeah, and so on. And I think it's interesting that oil is fossil energy that is taken from a material that was produced millions and millions of years ago. And we use this to produce our own energy instead of using the sun energy directly. Yeah. Why do we take this kind of, how do you call it, umweg? <laughs> a roundabout way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the reason I was wondering is because I went to an exhibition a few weeks ago called Zero Waste, which was also about how different artists are interpreting the treatment of the environment and how we're creating more waste and we are preserving the environment. And this exhibition as well is also trying to address a lot of these existential problems that we're now mm -hmm. facing. How much of an impact do you think exhibitions like this can have on people? Do you think that they will actually take away the knowledge and understand that this can inspire change? That when people see it, they'll reflect on their own behavior and understand that I need to do something differently? I think so, yes. I think it's maybe even not immediately, but it's subconsciously it's working in people. Mm -hmm. If you see, for instance, the installation by Susanne Kriemann, she was using the waste on the Asian coast. Mm -hmm. the plastic waste that pollutes the mangrove trees and she was collecting it and printing on photos of these mangroves she was directly printing and you really i mean if you are in the exhibition you really see that this dirty material is on top of the image yeah so it's really visually very direct and gives another level than a normal photography of the wasted plastic so she collected it from the mangroves and the places Exactly, and also the oil. The oil is also from there. Oh, really? The plastic okay. material, and actually she was using this as printing stocks. So she was using the oil and these plastic shoes, for instance, the flip-flops, and with the flip-flops doing the prints on the paper. Throughout the show, actually, what I like is the use of different materials as well. Mm -hmm. I think that's also quite interesting. And I hope that a lot of people understand or realize that you've got essentially 21st century materials that didn't exist in art before. And then we're reappropriating them in the context of an artwork. So she's taken this waste matter and these byproducts from human processes and then put them back into the artwork. Yeah, exactly. And it's really embarrassing that the whole the whole area is totally polluted by plastic you see nearly nothing else except of this plastic waste and there are activists who daily clean them oh okay i mean i've seen in some areas often where there'll be an oil spill that people will go and clean the rocks and then they'll rescue birds and other animals and try to get the oil and everything off them exactly and that's what they are also doing there that's why Susanne is the material cost she gets from us she's mm -hmm. giving to these activists because she said she is getting the oil <laughs> indirectly from indirectly, them yeah. which is her material that's a way for her to to do something that has a 
that reaches out to support these activists. Well, I guess, yeah, you're right. She's helping clean the mangroves by removing the oil and then putting yes, it into but, our Yes, but it's really only in the very, very background. She never would like that I would write this in the mm-hmm. text, for instance. It's just her own decision to do this. Mm-hmm. But in, in the exhibition and in the work, it's about this visual effect on the viewer and that this can change something in the visitor. Yeah. Were there any other interesting discoveries you made while curating the exhibition? Yeah, like for instance, the first work here, Anna Ravila, captured by terrestrial gravity. She's a young Finnish artist who before was working as a land art artist. Here she also goes into nature, but she's not working with the stones that are really there. But Mm -hmm. she's, I mean, when you see this, you see stones, very fragile standing on rocks and you think oh it's a little bit strange can this be real but yes maybe it's sacred stones because they sometimes have these strange positions and so you are also reflecting about the relation of the humans who maybe did this the humans and nature and how is this interrelation and what does this tell to me but definitely these are you could say faked sacred stones because she's producing them herself. They are just from paper and she is carrying them up the rocks. And she told us that this is also a very funny process because when she meets other people, they are laughing because she's carrying these kind of strange rocks. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, she is, um, so she's doing something totally absurd, but she's doing it with great seriosity and also telling us something about this and yeah also giving respect to nature yeah i mean maybe i misunderstood but what was the thinking behind creating the fake rocks and then taking them out there the the, the basic idea or the beginning was this story about how the moon appeared and the moon appeared when there was an explosion and elements of the earth were collected together and were building the moon if some of these elements would not have made the moon but would have taken by terrestrial gravity to the earth back ah, okay, it could yeah. look like this, this yeah. <laughs> that's the, the idea behind the world yeah. and then these strange rocks could be sacred places or not and how would we deal with these rocks when these stones would be there and so you could start with different kind of re- reflections well I suppose it's when you have certain sites in nature why some of them are more highly regarded than others and if you've got what looks like an ancient site of yeah. like worship Stonehenge. or anything yeah. exactly. or the heads on Easter Island or something like that you know that this area had once held significance to a group of people for that reason we need to protect it but this is an artificial arrangement yeah and there's also a connection then to Ingrid Torvund's work because she's also performing herself it's really about these rituals and worshipping these rituals but on the other hand to say we are now modern people so there's always also this slight irony in the work also by Ingrid I think Ah, Ingrid. She was the one that's doing the... The film in the end. There's the connection on the one hand because they both perform and also there's this approach that is at the same time serious, but there's also a little bit of humor. Yeah. I think when things are funny, we can't control that reaction. Mm -hmm. Like Whereas other things, if you want to make it serious or you want to present a certain heartfelt message, but if something's humorous, we sometimes aren't able to control how we react to it. It just comes out. The thinking about performances, so there are a number of performances taking place or that are happening as part of the exhibition. Is that right? Yeah, there is a performance by Daphna Maimon and Viviana Druga. It took place in the beginning of August and it was really very nice performance because actually when I have been to their studios, I just realized that these artists are so close to each other. And the funny thing was that they did not know each other before. 
Oh, okay. And I wrote an email to them and said, you have to, you really have to to meet each other because you have so many things you can tell each other. <laughs> I And I would actually like if you could could do a performance together. Oh, right. And so it was your right. You initiated the... the actually, <laughs> yes. And I told them, if of course, you could each do something on your mm -hmm. own, but I would really prefer if you do it together because you have certain themes like motherhood, sacrifice, and these themes that are in both of your works. Mm -hmm. And I think there are so many connections. And they picked it up and they said, okay, let's meet. And so they met and they really liked each other and they found many correlations and they decided to write letters to each other during spring. And out of this, they developed a performance and they told me that they even a little bit felt like doppelgangers. Yeah. <laughs> Because they are working on similar subjects and even similar materials. Because straw, for instance, is a material both of them use. We have a small exhibition with the results of the performance and you can have a look at it. In so the you can still see it. Okay. That, that's what I was going to ask, if it was documented or filmed or anything. Yeah, and it's, uh, but we have it only for, for another week. So it was three weeks as a kind of satellite project to this exhibition. Yeah, wow. That's really nice. I guess for the program in general, how much of a disruption has Corona had on the programming and the external activities? Well, yes, we, ha we had to close the galleries in March and we were able to open them again in early May. Mm -hmm. Originally, this exhibition was planned for mid-May, which means that this was, of course, not realistic anymore. And so during this time, when we had the lockdown, we permanently had to think about how we change it, what new developments come, and so we had to react permanently. And when the galleries were able to open again, I decided that we would start with this exhibition in July and have the other exhibition before for a few weeks still. But no exhibition will was cancelled in the end. Oh, we just I just shifted one exhibition to the into the next year. Yeah. Okay. And how long does the Fragile Times continue until? Fragile Times is till 18th of October. Until the 18th of October. Do you have anything special planned for Berlin Art Week in September? Actually, we have a sound walk, but this is rather connected to the other gallery. The gallery in Körner Park is one of 34 district galleries, communal galleries. And we do this so-called communal gallery week, which is in end of August. During that time, we also do a bike tours. One bike tour is starting in the south of Berlin and also coming to Körner Park and then ending at Kunstraum Kreuzberg. I will even be the moderator of one of the tours. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we are permanently thinking about new formats that work well in connection with Corona. Yeah. Before we did bus tours, but this is not possible now. We had 50 people on a bus. Now we have 12 people on bikes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's good to do something and people are really very happy. It was a nice experience when we opened the galleries. People were really happy. They really said, oh, it's so nice that you are here again. And it's good that we can see art and so on. So it was really very positive. And also now when we did this performance with Daphna and Viviana, the response was really very good. And also to the show, people really come and they enjoy having this visual experience connected with that they can use their brain. I think this combination of using brain and having a visual or touching or whatever experience, that's what contemporary art yeah. can do. <laughs> that's nice that the public response has been so positive and that they were hungry for an art experience or for contemporary Yeah, art. I think so. It was. I was also surprised because I thought that people would just stay home and that they would be... Yeah, I was happy that they reacted like that. 
Yeah. And the bike tours, all these different models that you're coming up with between the various municipal galleries, is that only throughout August or that will continue? These guided tours are only on 30th of August, mm -hmm. but we made a plan, a map with different bike tours. And so everybody could do them on his or her own. Were there any other new things you've had to introduce or you've maybe experimented with or did you have to do more digital outreach or anything like yes, that? Yes, actually during the lockdown, we, we produced videos of the exhibitions and made kind of guided tours through the exhibition. And we put this on our website and to the social media. Yeah. But of course, it's better than nothing. But on the other hand, if you have thousands of films about exhibitions on the web, it's not that inspiring. No. <laughs> And you never, also not in the catalog, you never can exchange viewing a video or looking in the, into the catalog with the real experience of the works in the art space. Yeah, exactly. Has it caused you to really have to rethink or look for new ways of presenting work because of all these different restrictions that are in place? Well, we are permanently thinking about finding new formats, but I would still keep this idea of having exhibitions because now, I mean, the space is quite big, so you have enough people that you can let in, mm -hmm. they can keep the distance, but with these events, I think we are happy because we have this terrace. Yeah. So we can do quite a lot like we did with the performance, with the opening. So we can do something outside. With the other gallery, it's more difficult. We had a meeting the artist event last weekend. It worked okay, but it's more difficult because you can let in only a few people. Yeah. Then we went out to the cafe and you can sit there for a while, but it's difficult. But here it's great because you have the terrace. Yeah, I think as far as locations go, this is a fantastic location anyway. But I think it also lends itself to this sort of in-between ground that you have the interior space, but you also have enough room outside to accommodate, I guess, the new restrictions that we have to uphold. Yeah, and they are changing permanently. So you yes. always have to, <laughs> to adapt your own program and then you decide something. For instance, when we had the opening, I mean, I had to do the decisions four weeks before. And that's why I said we invite only selected people and each artist can invite 10 people and so on. But when it took place, we could have, at that time, we could have said it's a normal opening. Opening, but well, that's life. Yeah, I guess it is changing so quickly. So you run the two different gallery spaces, the Gallery in Kerner Park, which is where we are now, and the Salbau. Are you involved with any of the other parts of the Kulturbereich for the district of Neukölln? Yes, of course. We have in Neukölln an organization called Young Arts Neukölln, and this is for Kunstvermittlung, art education. The Young Arts Neukölln is especially for school classes, and it has three legs, so to say. One leg is in Donaustrasse, one leg is here actually in Körner Park, in the Kreativraum, where we now have this small exhibition, but usually it's a workshop space where we do workshops with school classes. And the third leg is in Gropiusstadt. Oh, where's that? It's in Gemeinschaftshaus Gropiusstadt. And there is also a colleague of mine who is establishing a program for schools. They have uh, really good workshops there also with different techniques and so on. Have the artists from this exhibition, so from the Fragile Times, have they been involved with any of the educational programs or the Kunstvermittlung or anything like that? Actually, for this exhibition, the artists themselves not, but we had parallel to the show, we had workshops. But it was at that time, we were allowed only to have five kids and one artist, which is, of course, very little. Usually we have a whole class of 25 pupils. Are there other workshops taking place as part of this show? I saw there was one about... About bees. About bees, yes. 
Yeah, actually, yes. We had a, this holiday program for kids. They were in the morning, they were working with stones and doing this, how do you call this when you're really on the stone, like a, like Michelangelo. <laughs> oh yeah, what is that called? I mean, it's sculpting, in German, it's, I suppose. Yeah, sculpting, yeah. They, in the morning, they are sculpting. And in the afternoon, they were doing this bee workshop and learning something about how bees perceive the world. They were doing excursions to places where you can visit bees. And they were tasting honey and stuff like this. And they were drawing like... Between now and the end of the program in October, are there any other workshops or presentations? This bee workshop also for adults. And it's basically also this, like we do with the pupils, that it's about the relationship between men and the bees. You have, for instance, these glasses that you can use, and then you have this perception like a bee, and also different experiments around the life of bees. But this, we have uh, my colleague, Birgit Binder. She is responsible for the art education program. And she is selecting the artists who develop ideas connected to the issues of the exhibitions in the gallery. So that's because it's here about men and nature. She came up with this idea of the bee workshop with these artists, Katja and Elisa. So with the educational program and with the workshops for children or for adults, does that mean the artists don't necessarily have to be in the main program as long as they're related to the topic? Exactly. Exactly. Sometimes, I mean, to give workshops, you have to have time and you have to have experience. And not every artist wants to do this. Yeah. So it's very often we involve other artists who have experience with giving workshops. Mm -hmm. But if artists are involved in the shows who would like to work with kids, we invite them as well. So it depends. I guess for artists that are listening, how would they then become involved with what's happening in Noiko or with the different galleries? Do you have existing relationships with the artists or with this show in particular? You said you worked with the Finland Institute, so you knew you were already going to be working with artists related to Finland and to the topic that you came up with, Kati Kivinen. But in general, when you're curating an exhibition, mm -hmm. how do you find new artists to work with mm -hmm. or artists to work with? I mean, I'm also myself visiting other exhibitions and I'm also doing studio visit in Berlin in general but also especially also in Neukölln and regarding Neukölln artists we have these other formats in the other gallery which we understand a little bit like the gallery on the spot and there we announced the Neuköllner Kunstpreis where artists who live or work in Neukölln can apply that's one thing and the other is that we give three exhibitions a year to artists based in Neukölln because there are so many in Neukölln you can really do the This is really like a rich district with a lot of artists, international artists, but also very good artists who live here since ages. This art prize, for instance, gives the possibility to also give appreciation to people who maybe in the general art business would not have that much chances or whose work is more maybe at the moment not in the focus. Yeah. Yeah. Though it's good. But it's also interesting that we involve different generations. For instance, last time there was Johannes Lacher, mm -hmm. who is 80 years old. Wow, okay. And he did not win the prize, but he was nominated. And yeah. all the, also this, to be nominated is also kind of appreciation. Yeah, definitely. Was Neukölln always like this? Because no. if I think about when I moved to Berlin in 2010, when I spoke with other Berlin people that I knew and I said, look, I'm trying to find what area to live in because I'm not familiar with the city. When they spoke about Koritzburg and Neukölln, they essentially said anything below Maybach Ufa, just forget about it. And 
over the years, there is quite a focus on no-kiln and maybe it was emerging around the time when vetting and no-kiln came into the spotlight, but no-kiln does seem to have the spotlight. Still. Still, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's true. I mean, in, in the 90s, there were these articles in Spiegel, for instance, saying that Neukölln is a Brandherd, uh, a fire, fireplace or whatever. <laughs> and it was really like that. I remember that I had a friend who lived in the Reuterkiez, which is now extremely hip, but she lived there because she was student and it was cheap and so on. And then she got pregnant and immediately she moved out oh, okay. because of the ugly dogs, because of the, all the shit on the street and so on. Now exactly these streets are extremely hip. That's how things change. And we as a cultural department, we experience it also because it's, of course, also a social challenge because people who live here since ages, they are haunted out and young people come and it's difficult to find this balance. Of course, you can't keep everything always cheap, but on the other hand, to have these extremely high rents. And of course, I know a lot of artists who lived here for a long time and who had to move out because the owners said that they need the house themselves and the rents are getting higher and higher and artists cannot afford it. And Has it settled down though in the last couple of years? Because I know there was a period where it was it went up a few hundred percent but now has it maybe tapered off? Maybe it's not rising that high anymore but it's too high for yeah. artists and many artists lost their studios which is also a problem because it's hard to work as an artist in your flat. Yeah. Are there different initiatives or are you trying to come up with solutions within the district of Neukölln to somehow accommodate some of the changes, but at least preserve the heritage of the area? It's definitely difficult because if it's private ownership, we, can, mm-hmm. we can't do anything. No. But we try, for instance, with the corner park, not to make things that are too event-like because we don't want that it becomes a mower park. <laughs> <laughs> And I think it's still very nice because you have all the local people on the meadow in summer, but uh, you have also the young new people, students, and it's also good that all the students come to Neukölln. But it's important to keep this balance and we are thinking about how we could find formats to bring different people together. Mm -hmm. Actually, now my art education, Birgit Binder, my colleague, we were talking about this, that we would like to do more in this direction, how to bring people together from these different layers of society who are around here and who are also around Körner Park. Older people, younger people, people with migrant background, um, students, all of them, and to generate some kind of understanding. And maybe this could work if you do something together, like a workshop. Yeah, It can be easier because usually you have the cliches in your head because you never told to the people you are talking about. Yeah, <laughs> And so, but if you start to do something together, like to draw together and suddenly while drawing, you start to talk, you suddenly realize, oh, it's different than I thought. Yeah, exactly. I remember everybody sitting out in the Kerner Park and it is a nice open area just to see the different mixture of people and cultures and age groups and demographics. But then... I can understand from a, not a policy level, but when you're looking after a district and you have so many different people to 
to accommodate? How do you make sure that no one feels left out, that things are there for everybody and not just, for example, the students that are coming through or the expats that all like to move down to NOCO and you don't want everything just for them? Because as you said, when people have lived in the area for 30 years, they want to feel like they've been pushed out of the area. Yeah, that's also a challenge for me as a gallery director because it's a municipal gallery. So I have to uh, do a program that fits also for the people who live around the corner mm -hmm. and to do something that is on the one hand on a level that it can compete with something that is happening in Berlin Mitte, but at the same time fitting for the people here around. And I think with these subjects and issues like this issue of man and nature, mm -hmm. it can touch everybody. Yeah, I agree. A lot of the topics in the show, they're all very universal. Mm -hmm. And I think even the way that they've approached a lot of the subject matter from, well, looking at it from the mangroves or from the palm trees in the tropical areas, even the artists that was working with pagan rituals, but then combining that with science fiction, these are universal elements in all cultures that we mm -hmm. all somehow relate to, like the beginning of humans and how we each interpret the world, like mm -hmm. being afraid of an eclipse because we don't know where the sun has gone. Exactly. <laughs> What is planned after the current show? We have the festival 3HD, 3HD, under the subtitle Unhumanity. And actually, some of the issues are similar to this show, but in a totally different way. Mm -hmm. It's also about the relationship between man and nature, but it's going more into this digital aspects and queer aspects. But you could understand it like a continuation if you want. Yeah. <laughs> You can see Fragile Times at the Gallery in Kerner Park until Sunday the 18th of October 2020. If you're interested in the workshops with Elisa Dierson and Katja Marie Voigt from the beekeepers group Moabees, they'll be taking place on Saturday the 19th and Saturday the 26th of September. Just visit the Gallery in Kerner Park website, which I've listed in the show notes to register. For those curious to learn more about Berlin's municipal galleries, just visit kgberlin.net there you can also find the program for the Communale Gallery in Berlin Kunstwoche, which begins on Friday the 28th of August and continues until Sunday the 6th of September. This Sunday, the 30th of August, there are also guided tours to select exhibitions at participating galleries. Normally by bus, this year it will be on bike, so fingers crossed for favourable weather. Entry to all exhibitions and events is free, though for some you may need to register. In the show notes, I've listed the official websites and related social media for each of the events and places that we spoke about in today's episode. However, if there is anything else you would like to know about today's content or any of the previous guests on subtext and discourse, you're more than welcome to get in touch. That's all for now. Be sure to follow our new dedicated Instagram channel for additional content and updates between episodes. I hope everyone's staying safe and keeping healthy. Thanks once again for tuning in. My name's Michael Dooney, and you've been listening to Subtext and Discourse. <laughs>